If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 in the middle of your Bibles. In our recent study of Psalm 119, this praise for God's word, the psalm of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, I've been impressed, or encouraged maybe, by the, by the Bible's assumption and its testimony that it is enduringly relevant. It is relevant. The Bible, yes, is an ancient text written by dozens of human authors spanning millennia of years. But the Bible insists that it contains truth for all times, for all peoples, in all places, in all cultures, and for all circumstances. The Bible insists that it is a living book, not just an ancient book. It insists that when each part was written, yes, by a human author, the divine author was interceding. And so the writer of Psalm 119 can just keep referring as he prays to God and gives praise to God, referring to your words, O God, your words, your testimonies, your precepts, the words of your mouth. They come from your lips. We see similar statements in the New Testament these pithy sort of theological statements about what the Bible is and what it does. Like 2 Peter 1, verse 21, referring to the prophets of old, they were men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's that dual authorship. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Or 1 Thessalonians 2. You might not know there's a good scripture verse in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul says to the Thessalonian church, We also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God which is at work in you. So that's why it has an enduring relevance, the Word of God. Yes, each text is embedded in time and culture, and it's useful to know the time and the culture in interpreting the passage rightly and applying it to ourselves. But, but the Bible is not just embedded in culture and time. It's, it's alive. It speaks to us today. God stands behind it. And there's no other text like that. I've been impressed by how important this is, not only as I keep reading it in Psalm 119, but also as I contrast the enduring relevance of the word with the, the, the fleeting relevance of every other data point out there. As a culture, we are swimming, even drowning in information and opinion. You just think of your Twitter feed or your Facebook page or whatever you, knew, whatever you use to gather the news these days. It's not that every bit of it is, is false or fake, but it is often breathtakingly fleeting. What op-ed column in your favorite paper is worth reading three, work, three weeks later? 
You might every now and then decide to, you know, really dig down on a topic. Get your arms around a, a controversy. You know, see the stats for yourself. And three weeks later, that controversy has come and gone and life moves on. I occasionally tune in to sports talk radio, or even more so to, you know, the political commentary shows with the roundtable of guests and experts. I've often thought, what a horrible job some people have to comment on the last day. You know, I suppose someone really needs to have the, the nitty-gritty on this new dating relationship between Danica Patrick and Aaron Rodgers. Have you heard this? Oh, that's fascinating, isn't it? And someone is the expert on that for now. I guess someone has to provide commentary on our president's latest tweets. He's probably tweeting right now. Please don't check, though. Because I have something better for you than that. I have something better than our president's tweets or the commentary that will follow on Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons. It's the Bible. The Bible is truth for all time, for all people, in all cultures, in all places, for all circumstances. It has enduring relevance. It's relevant for you today. In a word, we could simply just call this wisdom. Wisdom. The Bible gives us wisdom. That's the emphasis of our verses in Psalm 119 today. Wisdom. Let me read verses 97 to 112, 16 verses, and listen for the words that are related to wisdom and understanding and teaching. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Well, hopefully you heard that emphasis on wisdom and instruction and being taught, especially in the first stanza, but also at the beginning of the first, that word picture of a, a lamp, the Bible being a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. And eventually we'll get to that verse and give it some careful thought. But let's first make sure we have a right understanding of wisdom. What is wisdom, specifically biblical wisdom? What is wisdom according to the Bible? 
Well, it isn't simply information. It's not just knowledge. It certainly isn't intelligence or a certain level of IQ. Biblical wisdom is the skill of living well to God's glory. Wisdom has to do with some D words, like decisions and discernment and discretion and discipline and even delight. How do we do these well? Where do we go for the answers? Well, we go to the Word. Biblical wisdom sees the world as it really is, fallen and redeemable by God. You think of Proverbs, that, that book that is the premier book on wisdom. And you think of its thesis statement in Proverbs 1.8, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the foundation of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. We've got we've to get God right. We have to understand that he is an awesome God, a God to be feared and also loved. And then you think of how that thesis fleshes out in the rest of the book of Proverbs into every nook and cranny of life. You think of all the different themes that get covered in the Proverbs. Marriage and sexuality, work and money, children and parenting, friendships and communication, conflict and peacemaking, and life and death. How do you approach those issues well? How do you do those things well? Well, Psalm 119 says you do it by the book, by the Bible. In fact, it actually commends to us the beauty of biblical wisdom. That's the first of four, four headings that I have for us as we work our way through this passage. The beauty of biblical wisdom the author of Psalm 119 insists that the Bible has made him wise. In fact, wiser than three different kinds of people. He's wiser than his enemies, wiser than all his teachers, and he has more understanding than the aged. Enemies at times look crafty, wily. They seem at times to be successful. But they're not wise. If they don't go to the Bible for wisdom, if they don't have the fear of the Lord as the foundation for wisdom, they're not wise but fools, according to Proverbs. It's often generally true that teachers know more than their students. But it's not always the case. The aged, the, those with multiplied years and many gray hairs, they are generally more mature than the youths, but, but that's far from a surefire way of measuring wisdom and understanding. Sometimes the younger are the wiser, especially if they have the Bible as their instructor above and beyond any human man. You think of how young Daniel and his friends were wiser than the king and wiser than the king's wise men. You think of how the young man David, who was chosen by God to be Israel's next king, but for many years was in the waiting and on hold. And there was an older king, and he was not a good king. 
In fact, 1 Samuel 15 to 28, it's almost like a character sketch of the biblical fool, King Saul, and a wise man, though young, David. You could think of the story of Job and his friends. After Job's major trial of deaths in the family and loss of livestock and and even boils on his skin, his three friends come to him and offer him counsel. For dozens of chapters, they offer him counsel, but it's bad counsel. They are bad friends. But it's in chapter 32, if you want to read it later on, that a young man named Elihu steps into the scene. And he's at first reluctant. He says, I haven't said anything because I'm the young guy here and I've let you old guys go on with your windbagging for a, for a while now. And that's long enough. And, and, and he begins to speak and he speaks truth and he speaks boldly. He speaks wisdom and he speaks for God. Or, or one more example of wisdom And the best of all is Jesus. In the gospel accounts, Jesus was proven to be wiser than the elders of Israel and the teachers of Judaism. So in Luke 2, we read, verse 40, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. A few verses later, we find out that the family has accidentally left the young Jesus at the temple When they traveled away, they realize later on that they've left him, and so they they come back. We don't know how long, but here's how they find him. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers at the age of 12. Jesus was wiser than his teachers, wiser than the aged, and he was wiser than his enemies. And ironically, in the gospel accounts, it's his teachers, the teachers of Israel, it's the elders, the elders of Judaism, who were also his fiercest enemies. But he stumped them in theological debate, Matthew 22 would be an example of this. And of course, he also, he, he showed them a thing or two when they crucified him on a Friday, but he was raised on Sunday. Well, there's more on Jesus and his wisdom to come later on. Back to Psalm 119. Again, there's a beauty to this kind of wisdom which is humble enough to not trust self and not look to the world and not look to save face in front of the world, but will look to the Bible for how to go about life. Again, not looking within, not inflating ourselves with pretense and facade to look impressive, not using the world's litmus tests for wisdom and success and the good life, but looking to the Bible. This man of Psalm 119 has his eyes on the Bible. Verse 104, it's through God's precepts that he gets understanding. 
And having been made wise by the Bible, he loves the Bible, verse 97. In fact, he exclaims about his love for the Bible. Oh, how I love your law. He exclaims again in verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey. This is all very personal. It's not just a way to live. It's not just being successful, whatever, however that would be defined or marked. He, he loves God, and so he loves God's law. I love your law. It's personal. It's experiential. Your words are sweet to my taste. He's mixing metaphors, reading words and tasting them. Yeah, because he lacks the capability of sticking with one metaphor or one word picture for the experience he has with God's word. Both Psalm 19 and 119 say that the Bible is sweeter than honey. In ancient Near East, honey was what was the only sweetener. People didn't have a bag of sugar, let alone a bag of brown sugar or their favorite thing like stevia. No, they, they had honey. That was it, if they had it. It was especially rare, especially bee honey. It was rare, so it was costly, and it was highly prized. And so make the connection. God's word, then, is to be desired. It's worth a lot. It's to be prized. It's to be sought, at, sought after. And when it's found, it's to be taken in and tasted, and enjoyed, and digested. Which leads to our second heading. The means of biblical wisdom. There's the beauty of it. Now, the means of biblical wisdom. How do you get biblical wisdom? We've already established it's with the Bible, right? Not the world, not your innermost thoughts or feelings. But now what we can see more specifically, it's meditation on the Bible. Meditation on the Bible. Twice, the psalmist here refers to meditating on God's word. Verse 97, verse 99. It's been about five or six times before now in this great psalm that he's referred to meditation. He loves it, so he meditates on it. In fact, all the day, verse 97. Verse 99, I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. How do we get biblical wisdom? Well, from the Bible, yes, but we need more than just the surface skimming of it. We, we don't get biblical wisdom by simply having the Bible in close proximity to ourselves. It's not like osmosis or geography. So the Bible on your nightstand, in that alone, it's not chasing any demons away. It's not really making you any more holy. But you've got to put it in. Like honey, you've got to prize it and seek it and take it in and taste it and digest it and repeat and repeat. But what is this thing called Meditation. We've talked about it in recent weeks from this great psalm. We need to remember what it is and what it's not, though. And probably some of you haven't been with us. And you need clarity on this because you might be thinking, meditation, oh, I know that. It's 
clearing the mind. It's mindlessness. It's, it's sort of just you, you hum and think of nothing, and somehow you feel more relaxed. Well, that's not biblical meditation at all. Biblical meditation isn't mindlessness, but mindfulness. It isn't mental inactivity. It is mental activity. Here's what J.I. Packer says about meditation. He says, meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It's an activity of holy thought consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communing with God. Now that's the best definition of meditation I've come across. That's what we needed to do. Read the Bible, yes, but slow down enough or stop even long enough to ponder and unpack and investigate and ask questions and find answers and make connections to apply and to pray through it. Or as we sometimes say, preaching it to yourself, right? Talking it up to yourself. We see that modeled in the Bible and we should do it with the Bible. This should probably then discourage the kind of Bible reading that cruises through the content of the Bible regularly enough, let's say the Bible in a year, but doesn't really experience God, grow in God, learn more. It's possible to do a, a good reading plan. And again, a, a Bible reading plan is a good thing. Reading through the year, uh, reading the Bible in a year, that's not a bad thing at all. But if you've got one of those reading charts with boxes next to the dates and the passages, and at the end of the year you've got all your boxes checked, but you haven't experienced God, you haven't, you haven't learned more, observed more from the Bible, then you're missing a key component to the Christian life, meditation. We also need to take it with us. Our passage not only would discourage thoughtless routine and dutiful Bible reading, but it would also discourage what I might call compartmentalized Bibling, to make up a word. Compartmentalized Bibling, where it's cornered off to one section, one slot of the day, one slot in your schedule, and never really has anything to do with the next 23 and a half hours or so. You see, it says, it is my meditation all the day. Or verse 98, your word is ever with me. What does that mean? Does it mean he had a Bible in his glove box? No, he didn't have a glove box. He didn't have a Bible like you have a Bible. So what it probably meant first and foremost for the author of Psalm 119 is that he memorized Scripture. Remember earlier he said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That means several things, probably one of which is memorizing God's word. Here he says, it's ever with me. I don't have the scroll. I don't have a, a handy pocket scroll. I'm not hearing it read at the temple all the time. And so where I can store it in my heart and memory 
than it is ever with me. So memorize, but there are also some other ways you can apply this principle of having the Bible ever with you. Take a morsel with you from your morning Bible study or from last night's Bible study. Take a morsel. Just, just a, write down on a, a piece of paper a, a Bible verse from whatever you read, however big a chunk it was. Maybe half a verse. Write it down. Put it in your pocket. And you have it with you all day. Take advantage of your commute if you drive much at all. Pull out that piece of paper. Put it on your dash. Or, or conveniently and, and conspicuously place Bible in your house, in those places where you tend to stop, you know, at the sink, maybe in the bathroom, maybe at your desk at work, even if you just have a little nook or cranny for your desk space. Put some Bible there that it might catch your eye, that it might grab your attention, that you might just give it a thought, might say a prayer, and continue throughout your day. Your word is ever with me. Third, let's think about the results of biblical wisdom. What are the results? There are several results in our two stanzas of Psalm 119 for today. I'll, I'll work through as many as we have time for. But clearly the biggest one and the most frequently repeated one is obedience. Obedience. You see, with biblical wisdom... There's a changed life and a desire to keep changing and keep following God's ways more and more. And so look at the emphasis, like verse 100, I keep your precepts. And 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. And 102, I do not turn aside from your rules. And 104, I hate every false way. And 106, I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. 109, I do not forget your law. 110, I do not stray from your precepts. In verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes. And maybe the most vivid example, and certainly the most famous of them all, is found in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you're wondering what to meditate on, what to memorize, what to take with you on Monday morning, try verse 105 of Psalm 119. And over the next week, just turn it. Look at it. Write some things down. I've heard John Piper say before, biblical meditation has a pen and a pad of paper close by. That's some good practical advice. Here are some things I wrote down this week as I looked at Psalm 119, verse 105, just the one verse. I wrote down, we need light, right? We need light. Uh, I wrote down, we need light because there's darkness around us. This is a dark world. We need a lamp. We need light. I wrote down, we can obviously go astray. We need a lamp for every step. We need light for the path. I wrote down, it is God's word that uniquely gives light, directing us where to walk and where not to step because it's dangerous. Again, the answer is not within. It's not in the culture. It's not in the newest fad. It's in the Bible. 
I wrote down that God's word, his light, is leading us somewhere. There's a path. This is going somewhere. This isn't endless. This isn't just rules for rules' sake. It's his path. It's a good path. I wrote down that a lamp seems to be used at night, and light is for the day. So I wonder if that's meant to imply that God's word is sufficient. It's day and night stuff, man. It's 365, 24-7. Well, I encourage you, the next week, just turn, gaze at, ask questions, write down observations and implications about this little verse. When you're done with that, pick another one. Keep at it. It leads to obedience. It does. It leads to obedience. And that kind of obedience in this passage, produces love and joy. It produces love and joy. Wisdom sounds boring. It sounds like the guy who, you know, never lets his gas tank get below a quarter tank. I don't really like guys like that. I'm a, I'm a bottom of the E kind of guy. I know it's not good for your car. I don't care. I'm going to get a new one before this one goes bad. You know? Wisdom seems boring. It's for people who push up their glasses because they're falling down and they like to talk about pi is 3.14 and they can keep going. It seems like obedience is just sort of rules, calculated stuff that's no fun. Commandments are just, you can't, you can't, you can't. But this man loves God and loves God's word. In fact, he describes it in terms of sweetness and honey. He tastes it. He says, I love your law. Did you notice that? C.S. Lewis reflects on this in his book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. He says that he often wondered about those verses like in this psalm, like in verse 97, which exclaim a love for God's law. And he wonders, how is that? How can you love God's law? He says, isn't that like saying you love your dentist's tools? And no one says that. They can respect the dentist's tools. They can benefit from the dentist's tools. But no one says they love their dentist's tools. Maybe dentists do. Where is Dr. Haight? Do, do you love tools? Okay, so some people do. C.S. Lewis was wrong on that one thing. He says, who says they have a love for God's rules and his law? And he says one explanation is just that the word law, especially in Psalm 119, doesn't just mean laws or rules or commandments. It can mean the whole Bible, right? We've learned that there are seven or eight different words for the word in Psalm 119, and they're used interchangeably. But then Lewis says, that's not enough. Because even if law means more than law, it can't mean less than law. It has to include commands. Clearly, he's after obedience. So is there a a satisfying explanation for the psalmist's exclamation of love for God's law specifically? I think there are... Several different answers to that. Lewis only offers us one, and I'll share it with you. 
He ponders Israel as a nation surrounded by pagan idolaters. And he says the ways of the nations surrounding Israel weren't beautiful or sweet or wise or good. Child sacrifice isn't beautiful or sweet. Idolatry isn't wise. It's useless and stupid. And so God directed his people in the way they should go to keep them from the the upside-down stuff, the backward and broken stuff of the nations around them. And he pointed them down a path that wasn't just right because he said so. It was good. It promoted human flourishing. It works. It's beautiful. And it produces love and joy. And so we can say, we should say, even though we fail at his commands, we can say, I love your commands. I know that they're better. There's a beauty in sweetness and joy, in marital fidelity, and in sexual purity. There's beauty in sweetness and joy, in parenting kids God's ways. There's a sweetness and beauty and joy about taking time to read over the Bible and pray, wanting to see more and more of our God. There's a beauty and sweetness in doing the hard thing in a broken relationship where you may need to confront a wrong that's been done to you or let love cover a wrong that's been done to you. It's not easy, but we know it's good. We know that there is beauty and wisdom and glory and joy in giving God the praise that is his due. God doesn't direct our attention to him and and call on us to praise him because he's an egomaniac or because he has inferiority complex. No, he he directs our attention to that which is ultimate, him. It would be less than loving for him to direct our attention back into the mirror or, or simply to another human being to treat them as something ultimate. It is loving for God to direct our attention and command us to praise him You see, the enduring relevance of the Bible, that stuff was true when this psalm was first written. It's still true today. The Bible makes wise. The Bible gives us beautiful wisdom. And so we should pursue it. We should pursue it and meditate on it specifically. We should have it with us as much as possible. This will lead to obedience, but it won't stop at obedience If you're drawing these themes on a piece of paper, you wouldn't put them in a straight line. It's not a a simple progression that meditation leads to obedience and obedience leads to joy. But these these are just feeding back into each other, aren't they? More Bible, more joy. More joy means more Bible and more praise. You see verse 108 Accept my free will offerings of praise, 
O Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, this language will sort of go right over your head. Free will offerings in the Old Testament were those offerings and sacrifices that weren't required based on the calendar, like the Day of Atonement. Nor were they those sacrifices which were the result and the need for sins that people had committed. Instead, the free will offerings were those which just sprung out of the heart, sprung out of a desire to bless God and thank God and give something to God. And so they would make sacrifice in the temple or bring offerings. But here, it's an offering of praise. That's unique. You find it in Hebrews 12 or 13, I think. You know, the sacrifice that comes from our lips, the writer of Hebrews says. But it's pretty rare in the Old Testament to talk about offerings from our lips or offerings of words. And yet he prays that it would be acceptable. Acceptable praise. That might raise the question for you. Does that mean God doesn't accept some praise? He asks God to accept his praise. Will God say no? What if our wisdom is a little shoddy? What if our obedience is sometimes, well, half-hearted at best? And what about our praise? God is great and greatly to be praised. I don't think my praise is good enough. I think often I'm distracted. I think often my heart feels like it it wants to jump about an inch toward heaven, but no more. How will we ever be accepted? And how will our, our good or our sacrifice or our praises ever be accepted before a holy God? Well, the answer comes in the New Testament, at least in its fullest sense. So here it is. Here, here it is in an answer. Here it is in a pithy statement. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 Peter says that God's people are like, oh, like modern-day priests in a cosmic spiritual temple, and they are offering up spiritual sacrifices to God, and here's the key, through Jesus Christ. Not in their own strength, not according to their own wisdom, not because they're pretty good or better than the rest. It is simply through Jesus Christ on the whole of the Bible that God would ever accept our praise. Which leads, fourthly, to the embodiment of biblical wisdom. The embodiment. The embodiment of biblical wisdom is Jesus Christ in the flesh. I know that's not explicit in our psalm, but that's where the Bible is going from here. That's where it has gone already. And so we saw from Luke 2 how Jesus was wiser than the teachers, wiser than the elders. Everyone was amazed at how wise he was. We can also see that in passages like 1 Corinthians 1. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 1 as we wrap this up? 1 Corinthians 1, a passage that shows us that Jesus is our wisdom, just like he's substitute righteousness, just like he's a substitute sacrifice, so also he is substitute wisdom for us. But 1 Corinthians 1 also tells us how we come to know this and come to 
get this. So let's start with the first part of it. Verse 30, here's the end of it. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because you are in Christ Jesus, how did you get to be in Christ Jesus? Well, that's what he dealt with earlier. So look up to verse 18, and I'll just read several verses for us here, where Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And it helps us understand why some think the Bible is stupid and others think it's divine. It helps us understand why some people think Jesus is stupid and the cross is stupid and that's weak and silly. And others are convinced this is the answer, this is the solution. So verse 18 says... For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, those, those of us who have become Christians, we're forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God, we have seen the cross differently now. We see it as the power of God. For it's written, quoting God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, the quote-unquote wise I'll destroy the discernment of the quote-unquote discerning. They are in their own eyes, but that's it. So Paul asks, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the quote-unquote, folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. They're the power people. They want the, the, the sign. They want the miracle. They want to see the power. And Greeks are a little more subtle. They, they seek wisdom. They, they want to hear something that makes them go, hmm, very interesting. But we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. That's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called of God, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter. For them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he says, he gets personal here. Verse 26 for consider your calling. Consider your conversion, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Our God saves in such a way that no flesh can glory in itself. No flesh can say, I became a Christian because I was smart enough to. Because I put it all together. I did my homework. I connected the dots. I played the chess game with the resurrection, and I saw the moves, and... I got it. 
It was in my doing. It was in my observation. It was in my research. Or, or maybe even it was because I, I came from a Christian home and mom and dad prayed for me and, and they were godly and they taught me the gospel and God can certainly use that. But isn't Paul saying here that doesn't save anyone? God saves in such a way so that no flesh can glory in itself. So let the one who boasts, boast only in this, the Lord and what he's done. If you're not a Christian, I don't suspect that the Bible comes across to you as very wise at all. So it's no surprise then that Jesus seems really weird to you, right? I mean, you're here. If you're not a Christian, you might be here and you might be here because someone invited you you're here because you're looking for something you're here because you're curious what the the building on the corner of Vista del Norte is like maybe today God is beginning to sort of flip your heart reveal some things show you some things the Bible seems to make more sense now than it did and Jesus seems to be maybe an option for salvation now Well, ask him to keep revealing himself to you. Keep reading, keep praying. Call on his name. Be saved. And when God saves, know that he doesn't just forgive. He restores. And so he takes redeemed sinners like you and me, Christian, and he points us back in this book and says, keep at it, keep at it, keep reading, keep meditating, walk in wisdom, Desire to obey, desire to go my ways for your good, for my glory. Do it in light of forgiveness, not in order to get forgiveness. But keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. This is the good life. Let God's word define it for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you indeed for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have become our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption through your cross and resurrection. We thank you that you are the living word, the word incarnate. We thank you, Lord, that you spoke through your holy apostles and you have preserved the words that they wrote down. We're thankful even, Lord, for in your providence having English Bibles. Thank you for translators. We thank you for those who print Bibles and those who put them electronically into technology. Lord, we, we want to love you and we want to grow in you. And so we don't just love your word and stop there. We love your word because we love you and we want to see more of you. May you reveal more of yourself this day and for eternity for your namesake. Amen.